Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you come and would you lead us now as we open up the scriptures and would you instruct your people? Lord, we pray. We pray for light as we consider the future and what it has for us and where you are leading us. And I pray that you'd help me to cast vision for this congregation, for our future. Lord, I pray that we would never lose sight of the mission that you have given us to make disciples. That, Lord, that we would never just sort of congregate and grow inward and forget about a lost world that is perishing. But that, Lord, what, whatever form this church takes in the future, that would be our passion. I pray for those that are here that are just visiting, Lord, that you would help them to glean something important today. I pray for the regulars, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith. So speak now, Lord, from your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I want to cast vision for us as a congregation. I believe that the Lord wants us to move out of this place and move into homes. And if you're thinking, that's Brian, that's a weird idea. I've never heard of that before. Uh, I want to show you from the Word of God that it's really not so strange. Debbie and I have spent 10 years meeting in home churches. From the year 2001 to about 2011, we met in house churches. Eight of those years were in Sonora. About two of those years were here in Sacramento. I actually left a position where I was a full-time pastor in the Bay Area because God put this vision on my heart to be involved in churches that met in homes. And I'll explain what they're like in just a minute. So we did that. I, I left my position. I left my salary. I asked them, would you guys just send us out? We found another family up in Sonora that was interested in doing this with us. So we moved to Sonora. We started meeting in homes. And very quickly, other people found out about what we were doing, and it did almost nothing to promote. And within a few weeks, it seems, we had four or five families meeting together, and it just kind of grew from there. At one point, we had multiplied into three different congregations. There was one in Columbia, one in Sonora, and one in Murphy's. And we had a family in Columbia with a giant house, and so every four weeks, once a month, we'd get all three of these churches together in the giant house, and sometimes we'd have 50, 60, I don't know, and we never really counted them, but there was a lot of people. <laughs> we were jammed into this gigantic living room just like sardines, and we had some precious times. We also made some really bad mistakes, and I'm going to be talking about the mistakes we made and also the precious benefits of house churches this morning. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at, first of all, a biblical foundation for meeting in homes, and then secondly, practical implications of meeting in homes. So, a biblical foundation. Two questions. Number one, where did the early church meet? Number two, what did the early church do when it met? So we're just going to look from Scripture and find out the answers to these questions. First, where did the early church meet? And we're going to have tons of Scriptures today. Okay, so Oleg's going to help us out here and put them up on the screen we're going to start in Romans 16. Romans 16, starting in verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also, greet the church that is in their house. So, whoever Prisca and Aquila were, they had a church in their home. Now, we know who these people were because they're, they're 
they're not giants, but they're well-known people in the pages of our New Testament. Priscilla and Aquila. Now, let's go down to verse 14. It's not going to be up here, so if you have a Bible, you might want to follow along. But verse 14 says, Greet Asyncritus, Phlegion, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermus, and their brethren with them. Now, wait a minute. Who are those folks? We have an, a list of one, two, three, four, five people and the brethren with them. Well, may I submit to you, this was another house church. This was another group of people that met together regularly in the city of Rome. We've already seen that there was a house church at Prisca and Aquila's house. Verse 14 says there was another group of people. And verse 15 says, Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. We've got at least three house churches in Rome. Then notice verse 23. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. So Gaius had a church in his house. Now Gaius lived in, in Corinth. So Gaius was a host to the whole church of Corinth. So now we've seen a, there's a, at least four house churches in the New Testament. Prisca and Aquila, the folks... In verse 14, the folks in verse 15, and then Gaius opened up his home for the whole church there at Corinth. Now go over to 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Now, here we find Prisca and Aquila again. They're not in Rome like they were back in Romans 16. Now they're living in uh, Ephesus. Because Paul's writing from Ephesus when he writes to the Corinthians. And Prisca have, and Aquila, they've moved from Rome. They're living in Ephesus. But wherever they go, it appears that they just open up their house and they have the saints come and meet with them in their home. They were known for hospitality. Open door policy. Come on in, saints. Let's worship Jesus in our house. Was the way they looked at things. And then, let's go over to Colossians chapter 4. Verse 15. Greet the brethren who were in Laodicea, and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. Now, we don't know anything else in the whole Bible. There, there's nothing else written about Nympha than this one little statement. And what we do know about her is that she had a church that was in her home. Prisca and Aquila, Gaius, Nympha, these, these saints of old that we know nothing about except the fact that they were hospitable and they, they opened up their homes for the church to meet in. Let's go over to Philemon, the book of Philemon, verse 1 and 2. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. There was a church that met in Philemon's home. Are we starting to get sort of a pattern that we see from Scripture? What you will find is that there was no regular meeting place that we can see from the New Testament other than people's homes. Yes, uh, the church did meet in the early years in Jerusalem at Solomon's portico in, in uh, the temple area in Jerusalem. 
They didn't do that forever. And Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. There was no Solomon's portico left after that. And I'm not even sure they kept meeting for those 40 years at that place. But in the early years of the church in Jerusalem, they did meet at the temple, probably for the apostles to be able to teach greater numbers of the saints. But verse 46 of Acts chapter 2 says, day by day, with one mind, they continued meeting in the temple and from house to house, taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number daily such as should be saved. That's a pretty good paraphrase of Acts 2.46 and 47. Oh, there we go. <laughs> so, even in Jerusalem, when the large groups met at the temple area for instruction from the apostles, they still met from house to house to take their meal. And I believe the meal that we're talking about there is the Lord's Supper. You find in verse 42, four verses earlier, and they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, apostles' doctrine, fellowship, prayer, intensely spiritual activities. It doesn't make any sense to throw common meals into that foursome. I believe that breaking of bread in verse 42 has to be talking about the Lord's Supper. So they were continually devoting themselves to the Lord's Supper, and they did it from house to house. As they praised God, as they prayed together, and they had favor with all the people, and God kept saving and adding people to the church. Over in Acts 5, verse 42, it says, And every day in the temple and from house to house they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So they were teaching and preaching from house to house Jesus as the Christ. Look at Acts 8, 3. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. I believe what this is saying is that when the church met, and Paul figured out where the church was meeting, he would go to that house, and he would drag off the leaders of that house church, put them in prison. You see the same thing that happens over in China today, in various places. The police will break up a house church meeting, they'll arrest the pastors, they'll drag them off to prison. So when it says, Paul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, I believe it's saying that the church was meeting in those homes, and Paul went to those homes and took the leaders. We also find in um, Acts chapter 12, that when there was a prayer meeting, they met in the home of John Mark's mother, Mary, in Jerusalem. But they met in a home. In Acts 16... Lydia is converted. She asks the apostolic team if they would come and stay in her home while they were there in Philippi. They did so. Later on, the servant girl is delivered from demons. Then the Philippian jailer and his whole household are converted and baptized. And we find that when these early saints got together, it says they went out of the prison. This is Paul now. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So the church is already meeting in the house of Lydia before Paul even leaves town. The universal practice of the New Testament is that homes are utilized for the meetings of the church. Now that sounds weird to us today because very few people, at least in America, uh, meet in homes. Although it is a growing movement, even here in America. If you go to China, most of the Christians meet in homes because to assemble without the government's permission is illegal. So either you can go to the government-established churches, wherein there's going to be some regulation from the top down, or you can meet separately 
privately in homes so that you have the freedom just to teach the scriptures. And so most Christians in China prefer to meet in homes. And you find the house church movement growing in other parts of the world too, in Africa and South America. So that's where the early church met. If, if you read any reputable scholar, they will tell you that. Nobody denies this fact. Nobody says, I mean, you can't deny it. It's there in our Bible from, from Matthew to Revelation. So let's go on to the second question then. What did the early church do when it met? We have a few snapshots in the New Testament that give us some information about what happened when the church met. And we're going to look at some of those. First of all, let's go over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And then jump down to verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Verse 9, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. So in verse 9, he talks about how he wants the women to conduct themselves. In verse 8, he talks about how he wants the men to conduct themselves. Now, when? Is he talking about this taking place privately? I don't think so. Why would it matter to the Apostle Paul how women adorn themselves when they were alone in private? He's talking about the meetings of the church. In fact, we know that from chapter 3, verse 14, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. So he's giving instructions on how the church is supposed to meet. And he says, when the church meets, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now, is that saying he doesn't want the women to pray, or it's forbidden for women to pray in the assembly? No, he never says that, does he? He never says, and women, you should never pray when the church meets. I think what he's saying is that, men, you are the leaders. God has called you to be the leaders in your family, and he's called you to be the leaders of the church. And so I want the men to take the lead to pray when the church comes together. Now, women, you can pray too, but I'm urging and encouraging the men to take that leadership responsibility for the church to lead out in prayer, to, to guide the church in prayer. So, we know that when the church met, the men took the lead in prayer. Secondly, we know that male pastors taught the Word of God. Now, you say, Brian, why do you say male pastors? Why not female pastors? Well, let's take a look at that. 1 Timothy 2.11 Paul says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, there are two things that a pastor or an elder or an overseer must do. And by the way, those words are interchangeable. A pastor is the same thing as an elder. An elder is the same thing as an overseer. They're interchangeable terms in the New Testament. So let's just call them pastors for now. There are two things that a pastor must do to fulfill his role 
for the congregation faithfully. Number one, he's got to teach the word of God. Number two, he's got to exercise authority in the congregation because God's called him to oversee that church. That requires him to exercise authority. Here we're told that a woman is forbidden to do both of those things. She's forbidden to teach over a man. She's forbidden to exercise authority over men. So this is why many within the evangelical church have concluded that it is the will of God for men to be the leaders not only in the home, but also in the church. And that's what we believe here at the bridge. We, there are two basic positions in the, the church today. One is called complementarianism. The other is egalitarianism. Now, egalitarianism means that men and women can do anything. Or, there's no difference in role between a man and a woman in the home or in the church. A woman is free to do anything a man is free to do. Complementarianism says men and women are equal in the sight of God, but there are differing roles that God has given to the man and to the woman. We hold to complementarianism here at the bridge. We believe that God has given different roles for men and women in the home and in the church. And we see right here in 1 Timothy 2 that the men, the male pastors, are to be those who teach the word of God and exercise authority. And let me show you some other passages from the pastoral epistles that might make this clear. Go over to 1 Timothy 4.11. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Prescribe and teach these things. Look at verse 13. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Look at verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Now he's urging Timothy, a leader, to do these things. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Let's go further to chapter 5, verse 17. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. You're catching these verses, right? I'm, I'm not explaining anything because they're self-explanatory. Elders are to labor in the word and doctrine. They're to labor in preaching and teaching. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. That's the dominant driving verb of these two verses. That's what Paul wants Timothy to get. He's putting him under compulsion. He's, he's laying a charge upon him. And he's saying, I charge you, I solemnly charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's going to judge all men, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Here he's talking about the qualifications of an elder or a pastor. He says, Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So an elder must be able to hold fast the word of God so that he can exhort in sound doctrine and refute people who contradict sound doctrine. That's the job description of a pastor. And every elder is a pastor. Every pastor is an elder, according to Scripture. So, 
What happens in the early church when they met? Well, men are leading out in prayer. Male pastors are teaching the word of God to their congregation. Are we all together so far? We see that in the word? Okay, number three. Scripture is being read publicly. And we already read this verse, but let's go back to it. 1 Timothy 4.13. Paul says, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. So someone is probably standing up in the midst of that house church and reading one of the scrolls. Maybe one of Paul's letters, or maybe they have a letter from one of the other apostles. Maybe they've got an early version of one of the Gospels. They're reading these things. They also have portions of the Old Testament scrolls. Maybe Isaiah or Jeremiah, and they're reading these things to the congregation and expounding upon them. Now, we don't understand the situation they were in because we have the benefit of living in an age when there is a printing press which prints out Bibles for us. For 1,450 years of the church's history, there was no printing press. And so if you had a copy of the scriptures, it was because somebody hand-copied it, maybe it was you, hand-copied it, and that was a treasure. And the early church, I'm sure that the elders had access to scriptures, but I doubt very seriously that every member of that church had a copy of their Bible. In fact, I'm sure they didn't. On top of that, many people in the first century were illiterate. So... Do you see the value of someone standing up in that kind of an assembly and reading the scriptures? They couldn't do it at home. You, you better believe they were listening with all their ears and with all their heart when someone started to read the word of God in the midst of the assembly. It was important when someone stood to read the holy word of God. So men take the lead in prayer. Male pastors are teaching the word. Scriptures being read publicly. Number four. They're all contributing to the meeting in one way or another. Now, we've seen the pastoral epistles. In the pastoral epistles, we have an emphasis on structure and authority and pastors, things like that. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 14. We have a whole different emphasis when we go over to that book. 1 Corinthians 14. Now, 1 Corinthians 14 is all about tongues and prophecy. And Paul gives this long extended teaching on, on those two gifts. But what I want you to see starts in verse 26. Paul says, What is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Catch that. When you assemble. Now we're getting a window into the early church here. When you assemble, each one, that's important, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. He doesn't say, when you assemble, let the pastors have a psalm and a teaching. He says, let each one. In other words, the Apostle Paul expected that the Holy Spirit was going to be working in each of the members of that church and that the Holy Spirit has gifted each member of that church differently so that when they come together, they all should have something to contribute to the whole, the whole meeting. Now, I, when he says psalm, teaching, revelation, tongue, interpretation, I don't think that's an exhaustive list. It's just a sampling. He could have also said things like a praise report, an evangelistic experience, a testimony. You, you see, the list could go on and on. So when the church gathers, this should be part and parcel of what happens in the meetings. If, if we go to a church and it's all choreographed and we, we watch the show up front and we watch the people singing and then we listen to the guy preaching and we walk out of there, 
1 Corinthians 14.26 has never happened, right? We've just been observers kind of watching a show. And church was never intended to be a performance or a show. It's intended to be the spirit moving amongst the people to edify each other. Notice the very end of 26. Let all things be done for edification. That's the overriding goal whenever the church gathers. If I speak, I should make sure that what I say is going to edify. If I'm just going to go off on a rabbit trail and tell my own story because I like to tell stories, that's not edifying. We need to all be thinking, okay, if what, is what I'm going to share going to build up this body, this church? And if it is, share it by all means. So yes, you have pastors teaching and preaching the word in the church, but you also have every member having the opportunity to express themselves to build up the body through whatever gift they might have. He says, each one has a teaching. So not only do the pastors teach, but, and I would say he's not talking to the women because the women are told not to teach in 1 Timothy 2. I believe he's talking to the men of that congregation that the men may have a teaching as well. A shorter teaching. Maybe it's five minutes. Maybe it's a devotional thought. Maybe once they get better, it's a 10-minute teaching. Maybe if they get really good at teaching, they bring the main teaching, the central teaching of that meeting. But... There can be teaching happening, going on. Psalms. So somebody brings a psalm. What does that mean? Well, maybe they go back to one of these psalms and they learn to sing it. Or they create a tune and they bring it to the church and the church learns how to sing one of the psalms to this new tune. By extension, we could say maybe they have written a song to the Lord and they bring that song and they teach it to the congregation. Or they play it for the church and the church is edified. So music, singing is part of this corporate expression, teaching is happening, and we also find the gifts of the Holy Spirit, like revelation. That's talking about prophecy, which he's going to go on to explain in 27, 28, and 29. So, he also tells us in the early part of chapter 14, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. I understand prophecy to be a spontaneous word that the Spirit gives someone for the church. It's not, someone, it's not they're studying their Bible and, you know, they come prepared for something that they've studied. That's a teaching. This is a spontaneous thing that the Lord impresses upon someone to deliver to the church. And it's got to be judged by the rest of the church, according to the next verses. We also read about tongues and interpretation here. I know this really freaks out a lot of people if you start talking about tongues and interpretation. But there it is in our Bible. And in fact, at the end of chapter 14, he even tells us, um, do not forbid to speak in tongues. We have a direct command of God. Don't forbid it. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. So what is that proper orderly manner for the expression of spiritual gifts? Well, let's read 27, 28, and 29. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So there's rules, guidelines, placed upon the exercise of the gift of tongues. Two, or at the most three, there's got to be an interpreter. If there's no interpreter, stop speaking in tongues. Right? Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. So, yes, there is to be this free-flowing contribution of spiritual gifts that take place in a, in a church meeting, but there are 
fairly strict guidelines that Paul puts upon these gifts so it doesn't turn into chaos. In fact, he tells us in verse 40, it's got to be done properly and it's got to be done in an orderly manner. So we have singing, we have teaching, we have the expression of the gifts of the Holy Spirit all done properly in an orderly manner and it's done, according to verse 26, by each one. Which means if you are a Christian and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, you have the glorious possibility of being able to come and, and bless the church. Now, we've tried to do that here at the bridge, haven't we? That's why every Sunday morning we have a sharing time. And I ask you, who has something from the Spirit? But it really has not ever flowed very freely. Uh, in my 10 years in the house church experience, you find that once you start getting out of a public setting like this and into someone's private home, it just starts happening more freely for one whatever reason. Uh, not sure exactly why, but it just does. It just does. So, they could all contribute to the meeting. A fifth point about how the early church met. They would all eat the Lord's Supper together. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. No, before we do there, let's go to Acts 20, verse 7. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Now notice a couple things here. First of all, what day of the week was it? First day of the week. Why did they come together on the first day of the week? Read your Bible. It's right in your Bible. To break bread, that's what it says. That was the purpose of why they gathered on the first day of the week. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. There's your purpose clause in that sentence. That's why they did it. Go over to 1 Corinthians 11 now. If I had the time, I'd love to do an exposition of the Lord's Supper here in 1 Corinthians 11, but we don't. We don't have time for that. But I just want you to see something in verse 33. Here, Paul is climaxing his teaching on the Lord's Supper. And he's getting to the very end. We know he's getting to the end because he says, So then, my brethren, here's I'm <laughs> what I've been leading up to. Here is the climax here. So then, my brethren, when you come together to do what? To eat. <laughs> that was the purpose for which the church came together in Corinth. When you come together to eat, you need to do one thing. You need to wait for one another. The problem was that, you're going to find this back in verses um, 20 through 22. The problem is that people were eating their own supper before some people had got there so that when the poor came late, because they had to work all day, when they finally got off their jobs and came to the church meeting, all the food was gone. And they were left hungry. And the people that got there early, who were the richer ones... They had been drinking for several hours, and some of them had gotten drunk. So there was an abuse of the Lord's Supper going on. So that's why he says, when you come together to eat, just wait. Wait till they all get there before you start eating. And if you can't refrain yourself because you're too hungry, eat a little bit at home before you come. I think that's what he says in verse 34. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. So the purpose in Corinth, what was the purpose of them coming together? To eat. Have you ever thought about that? 
The purpose of our church meetings ought to be to eat. Isn't that cool? Everyone likes to eat. That's why they got together, to eat. Now, is he talking about eating a tiny bit of uh, bread and a thimble full of juice? He's not. We know that because of verse 20 through 22. Some people ate so much that they were satisfied, but others got there and they were still hungry. Paul expected that whatever they were eating would satisfy someone's hunger. This little bit of bread isn't going to satisfy anybody's hunger. This was a meal. Have you ever thought about, well, verse 20 says, Therefore, when you meet, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. He calls communion the Lord's what? The Lord's Supper. Now, what's a supper? Dinner. It's dinner. It's dinner time. It's a meal. You sit down and you have supper. It's not a tiny little bit of bread. It's a full meal. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, uh, what was taking place? The Passover meal. He took the Passover meal and he, he added this element onto it and it became the Lord's Supper. So when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, they were having a meal. We find in Acts 2.46 that they were eating their meals together from house to house. We find in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, they came together to break bread. In 1 Corinthians 11.33, we found that when they assembled, they came together to eat. This is all consistent, isn't it? Which tells me, finally, let's just list these now. What did the early church do when it met? The men took the lead in prayer. Male pastors taught the word. Scripture was read publicly. They would all contribute to the meeting. And they would eat the Lord's Supper together as the focal point. This is the climax of the gathering. This is what everything has been leading to. You see? They're coming together to eat. Now, I do, I do regret... I don't regret the fact that we have had the Lord's Supper here every, every Sunday. I, I enjoy that. I love that. But I, I regret the fact that we've never been able to figure out a way that we can do it as part of a full meal. Because I've always believed that was scriptural. But in our current setting, in this setting, I've, we, have, we rent the room for two hours. We just don't have time to do it. So we, ne we never have done that as a church here at the bridge since we moved into a public setting. But you can tell very easily that if we go into homes... It's, in, it's easy. It's like it's built for that kind of a church service. So that's what the early church did when it met. Now, let's move from a biblical foundation for meeting in homes. Let's move to practical implications of meeting in homes. And first of all, I want to talk to you about the pitfalls of house church. What are the pitfalls of churches that meet in homes. In fact, I know what those pitfalls are because I made all these mistakes. <laughs> and that's why this time around, I, I don't want to make them again. I have read thousands of pages of house church material. I've listened to dozens of messages by people who talked about the house church movement. I'm, I'm very, very familiar with it. And let me just express some of these pitfalls. Number one, uh, no leaders. In most house churches, they don't want a leader. They don't want a pastor. 
they want it to be leaderless because there's an anti-authoritarian spirit within most house churches. They take pride in the fact that we have no leaders here. Just everybody kind of hears from the spirit. We all share. And, but there's no one who exercises authority or oversees that congregation or is watching out for souls or is leading it or is bringing uh, authoritative Bible teaching and preaching to the meeting. Folks, that's unbiblical. Haven't we just read a bunch of scriptures that said in the early church, the, the elders, the pastors were uh, working hard at preaching and teaching? So that should tell us that that aspect of the house church movement is bonkers. <laughs> it, it's not biblical. We should not follow them in that excess or that, that waywardness. Number two, there was never any church membership. And what I mean by that is commitment. Formal commitment to that body. It's only been over the last maybe five years that I've been having this building conviction that membership, you might not find the exact um, procedure about how the early church entered into this, this commitment to each other, but you do find the, the principle. It's all over the New Testament. And it is so helpful when it comes to shepherding a people or discipling someone who starts to stray from the truth or having a true unity amongst the brothers. But in most house churches, it's just very, very loose. There's no membership, just come. And if we don't see you for two weeks, well, it's okay. Just come whenever you feel like it. No, there... I believe what we see in the, in the New Testament is a commitment to the body, a commitment to the brethren. Number three, another pitfall is no creed. What I mean by that is no confession, no statement of faith. Usually a house church will say, we have no creed but the Bible. We don't need any other creed. Well, that's why you're going to have so many different opinions about basic elementary doctrines and it's a way for disunity and division to creep into a church. We never had any creed and we always had arguments and we always had differences of opinion and we, <laughs> we, we, we tried to love each other and I think we did a fairly good job at that. But when it came to doctrine of unity, we didn't have very much of it. Uh, there's no church discipline in most house churches, at least the ones that I've been involved in. But yet the Bible says a ton about church discipline. It's all over the place. How we're supposed to be our brother's keeper. We're supposed to bring back that person who's straying from the truth. How if someone's caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, go and restore them in a spirit of meekness. If someone sins, go and reprove them in private. If they won't listen to you, take one or two more. And then if they won't listen to you, tell it to the church. I mean, that stuff is all over the New Testament. That's, that's, that's got to be something that we as a church embrace if we claim to be biblical Christians. And then another one is there is no planned evangelism in most house churches. The church grows inward. We start thinking about the fellowship is so great here. We love having the Lord's Supper every week. We love the sharing that's going on. But in the house churches I was a part of, little if any organized, planned, focused, strategized outreach and evangelism took place. Folks, I think those are mistakes. Those are errors that need to be corrected. So those are the pitfalls of home churches. What are the benefits? And there are some glorious benefits, some glorious ones. Number one, intimacy is heightened. Intimacy amongst the brothers and sisters in a meeting. What do you mean by that, Brian? I mean closeness, a close-knit sharing amongst the brothers. 
it's almost unavoidable simply by moving out of a, a building where it's a little bit cold and impersonal and moving into someone's living room <laughs> because someone's there at the door giving you a hug when you come through the door and you're sitting looking into people's eyeballs sharing what God has done in your life that week um, it, it, it just happens I mean have you ever been had sort of an acquaintance who asked you to come over and share a meal with them and after you were done spending an evening in their home looking at their wall hangings and them telling you about their personal lives, you go away feeling, wow, I really feel like I know that person so much better. Just by going and spending an evening in their home. Well, it's the same kind of principle. When the church comes home, when the church moves in together, something along the lines of greater intimacy just naturally takes place. Number two, greater accountability. If we know each other better, it's going to lead to more accountability amongst brothers and sisters. It's going to be less easy to hide sin that we're getting involved in. At least it should be. And if it's not, we're really not doing our job. So there's going to be a greater heightened sense of accountability amongst the brothers. Number three, a well-tended flock. What I mean by that is... If a pastor is trying to shepherd 200 people, or let's say 2,000 people, it's going to be a lot more difficult than if he's shepherding 20 people, or 25 people. I would think that those 20 or 25 people are going to have more shepherding care, and greater shepherding care, than a church where there's a single pastor trying to minister to 200 people. What we would like to do, and as we move out of City Hall and back into our home is I would like to start meeting with all the men of the church Tuesday mornings at 7 o'clock at Panera Bread for scripture study every week. And what I would like to do is try to build into the lives of the men so that they can then become the shepherds of their families and they can build into the lives of their families so that families start to have family worship and they start to open up the word together. I, I do believe that if we can build strong men, we're going to build strong families. So a well-tended flock. Fourth, every member ministry. It's possible to go to a big church and slip in the back late and leave early and never get involved in a smaller group to, to never grow in your ability to be able to, to minister to other people. It's very possible. And a house church is impossible. <laughs> you can't slip in the back. I mean, if you're there, you're known. Everybody knows you're there. And we're encouraging you to bring something from the Lord to edify that group. So you have these opportunities every Sunday to learn how to minister to the body. Number five, a wise use of resources. A wise use of resources. We pay, I think, 600 to $800 a month to be able to use this room here for two hours a week. Well... If we, if we go to a home, we have six to eight hundred more dollars every month to either to evangelize locally, to send to missions, or to help someone who is hurting and in financial distress. We have those dollars available to us. And then number six, it is very easy now to have the Lord's Supper as a meal every week. Everybody brings food. It's a big potluck every week. After our time of teaching and edification, we set all the, the food up. We have special prayer, recognizing that this is the Lord's Supper and we're, we're remembering that Christ 
has died for our sins and it's symbolized in that bread and in that juice and then we all have fellowship around the table as we eat together. It happens very easily and very naturally in a home. Number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Turned out well. I love the number seven. Number seven, there is the ease of church multiplication. Now, what do I mean by that? If we take a traditional church with a seminary trained pastor and a choir and paid staff and programs and say, okay, we want to plant another one of those. It's awfully hard to do. You, have a lot, you need a lot of people. You need to find the seminary trained pastor, which isn't easy to do. You have to have the money and the budget to support that pastor and this, this staff over here and all the people to run the programs. But the thing is, those are extra biblical requirements. The Bible never says we have to have any of that stuff. Right? I, I can't find any verses that say we have to have a seminary trained pastor, we have to have staff, we have to have uh, all this money in the budget, we've got to have programs. That's just stuff that we've kind of adopted over the years. There's nothing sinful about any of that. Right? No, that, it, good can be done. But... It's not required to be a church. So if you skim down all of the essentials of being a church and, and you start meeting simply, what you find is that all of the extraneous things just start to melt away. You don't, you don't need them. You, you don't even really want them in this kind of a structured church. And the, multiplying that church becomes very simple. You need a godly man who meets the uh, biblical requirements of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and has the ability to teach. You need that. And then you need people that surround that man and are willing to form a new congregation. But all you need is someone opening up their home and you start a new church. So my, my vision would be for us to continue to do evangelism, seek to make disciples, and as the Lord blesses and new people are added to eventually start other home congregations. And once we have more than one, then monthly to bring those two congregations together for sort of a celebration meeting, but usually we'll be meeting in homes. So there's ease of reproduction. A house church by definition is small in size, simple in structure, and easily reproducible. How did the early church spread so rapidly? I mean, think about it. They went from 120 people to thousands upon thousands of Christians within one generation. Probably thousands of churches. We don't know how many, but I'm sure there were thousands. Um, within one generation. They did it through the house church structure. So, we've seen the pitfalls. We've seen the benefits of churches that meet in homes. Third one is the multiplication, and we've touched on this already, but what do you do when your church gets so crowded that you, nobody else can squeeze in? You start another church. You multiply. You don't do it without a leader. In fact, sometimes it might be necessary for uh, one pastor to uh, adopt another congregation temporarily until you have a man that can oversee that group. Uh, I believe biblically that's just, that's just being responsible. But, uh, but you multiply, and you start other congregations. So starting this next Sunday, that's what we'll be doing. That's what we'll be doing. Let me just say, 
We don't think that it's wrong for, for churches to meet in special buildings or to meet like in City Hall like we're doing here. And if, if I believe that, I would have believed that we've been doing wrong for the last three years. No, I don't believe it's sinful. It's not wrong. There, there are two things that we need to see when we go to Scripture. Something that is either prescriptive or something that's descriptive. So when we read about the church meeting in homes, is that descriptive or prescriptive? It's descriptive. It's describing what took place. It's not prescribing that it must be done this way. Now, as we've seen, there's some pretty good reasons to do it that way, but you don't have to. There are some very wonderful churches that have lots of people in them and meet in big buildings, and God is using them in powerful ways all around the world, and we should thank God for them. This is one way to do church. And as I think about it, I'm excited to see what God might do through us as we approach this, this new phase of our existence. Sort of all, almost a new church plant in a way. It's, it's, a new, it's a new door that we're opening through. Let's pray, and then if you have questions this morning, um, I'll try to answer them. Father, thank you this morning for being with us. Thank you for your word that gives us helpful instruction. I pray that as a church you would lead us now and guide us as we take these steps of faith into a new area, through a new door. May you be pleased and glorified with us, Lord. Help us every step that we take, Lord, because we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.